0: Sing in that last chorus come from a little book at the end of the old testament called micah micah chapter 6 verse 8 where we read he has shown you O mortal what is good what does the lord require of you to act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your god i'd just like to lead us in a prayer of repentance for the times we know in our hearts that's not been true for each of us let's pray together Heavenly Father, we come before you now and it's wonderful to be able to sing your praises to reflect on who you are, all that you have given us, the glory of your name. You alone are worthy to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things. And yet we read in these verses that you call us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with you as God. We do come before you this evening and ask for your forgiveness when this isn't true in our life. When we're proud and we rely on our own strength to solve situations, to work our way through each day. When we don't love mercy, when we're not quick to forgive, when we don't act justly, but are out to be self-seeking. We ask for your forgiveness, but we come to you tonight knowing that those who confess their sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we make that claim in Jesus' name tonight and we ask for that fresh start. I pray that as we turn now to think about how we can use the gifts that you have given us, that your spirit would be upon Neil, that you'd help him to help us to understand this passage we're going to read together now and that we would leave here wanting to serve you in the week ahead. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please grab a seat. If you've got a Bible, it'd be great if you could look up Luke's Gospel chapter 19, beginning this series in the back end of Luke's gospel um, for a few weeks now. Looking at a series of questions and uh, the question we're looking at tonight is how can we use our gifts? How does God want us to use our gifts? So we're looking at Luke chapter 19 and I'm going to read from verses 11 to 27. If you haven't got a Bible in front of your phone there should be some words coming up on the screen behind me. Luke 19 verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities, The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take care or charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his miner away from him, and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, so they replied, He already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be, will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Well, let's pray as we come to
1: this passage together, shall we? Father God, we confess that um, our view of you may not be as you really are, as you want to be seen, and so we do pray this evening as we look at this passage that you would take away anything that would um, prevent us from seeing you in all your glory. Help us to see you as the God you are, the God of generosity, of grace, of love, and as we do so help us to respond with lives of gratitude and servanthood and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I know you all know by now that I like to make illustrations from TV programs and films and things. And the um, uh, first one I want to start with this evening is um, The Apprentice. I'm um, sure lots of you, if you don't watch it regularly, will at some stage have seen or know about the TV program The Apprentice. Just in case you're not familiar with it, what happens is that we have um, about a dozen budding young entrepreneurs, and they're divided into two teams, and each team is given a task, uh, the aim of which is to make as big a return as possible on the money that they've been given. So the task can be all sorts of things. It could be something like um, producing a brand identity for a new breakfast cereal, coming up with the advert, the, the character, and all that sort of, sort of stuff. Well, the drama comes when they've completed their tasks and they get called back into the boardroom to face Sir Alan Sugar, or um, I think he's Baron Sugar now, isn't he? I think I read. Um, And they're asked how well they think they performed. And then you get all the dynamics of the groups, uh, as they realise actually they didn't perform quite as well as they thought. And they all start to blame each other, and they point the blame and uh, the failure. And in the end, um, Baron Sugar decides actually who was most to blame, and points the finger at them and tells them that they're fired. And off they go. Now none of us can see into the hearts of the contestants and uh, there may be some who have a very high regard for, for Alan Sugar. They may want to please him. I guess probably most of them just want to win and make a name and a career for themselves. Now this evening we're looking at a passage which has some similarities with The Apprentice. Because ten people are given some money, um, they are given it to invest, and when the master comes back, he doesn't call them to the boardroom, but he does call them before him and ask them to give an account of what they have done with the money that he's entrusted to them. But this is where there's a crucial difference, because the parable represents God and his servants, and God can see into the hearts of every human being. He knows their motivation and what God is looking for is not just um, how much of a return they've made, but what is their attitude towards him and what he rewards is our faithfulness and our faithfulness towards God is a result of how much we love him and how much we trust him, ultimately how much we know him. But before we get into the parable, though, let's just take a step back. Uh, Open your Bibles, if you would, to um, to Luke um, chapter 19. Uh, Because um, this uh, sermon series in Luke 19 follows Jesus and his disciples as they make their way to Jerusalem. Uh, It's coming to the climax of Jesus' mission on earth, his death and his resurrection. But there's a little bit of confusion here. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the promised King. And we've seen that over the Christmas period, haven't we, as the wise men came and and bowed down before this this king, even though as a baby they knew he was going to be a king. And we saw it in Simeon and Anna, two elderly people in the temple who'd been waiting all their lives for this king to arrive. And when Jesus started his adult ministry, he called disciples to follow him. And he taught them about the kingdom of God. And if you look back at the previous chapter, at uh, verse 29 of chapter 18, Jesus said to them there, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. But then it takes a strong gear shift if you look into verse 31 as it carries on because then Jesus says to the 12 disciples he says we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled he'll be handed over to the Gentiles they will mock him, insult him and spit on him they will flog him and kill him and on the third day he will rise again And it carries on to say the disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They didn't know what he was talking about. He's already told them this previously, but they still don't quite get it. They are more impressed when what happens next. They go into Jericho and Jesus um, heals a blind man. That is the sort of miracle they want to be seeing, the power of this king. Then they carry on into Jericho and uh, as we saw last week, they meet Zacchaeus. Jesus seeks him out and changes his life completely. He is a a corrupt tax collector and suddenly after meeting with Jesus, he says um, to everybody he's gonna give away half of his possessions to the poor and if he's cheated anybody, he's gonna repay them four times as much. And as Jesus leaves the house, he says, Today, salvation has come to this house. So Jesus had come to bring salvation. He'd come to seek and to save the lost. But as we get close to Jerusalem, Jesus tells his disciples this parable we're looking at this evening. And why does he do that? Why does he do that? We'll have a look at verse 11. Because here we have the reason. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because... He was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Despite all that Jesus has told them about his impending death, Jesus is coming to the capital city. And there's almost an expectation that now he's going to take it by force. He's going to inaugurate his, his kingdom. And as he comes into Jerusalem, as you will see next week, he is welcomed as, as king. People are, are praising him with loud voices, shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is warning them in this parable that whatever that initial welcome might be like, his becoming king is not going to be as they might be expecting. Although salvation has come, and people will be able to submit to his rule, not everyone will do so. The full inauguration of his kingdom, when everyone bows the knee, won't happen until he returns. So of course the inevitable question is, well, what should his followers do in the meantime before he comes again? How should they they live their lives in a world where people don't accept his kingship? And that's what we're looking at this evening. It's a question that's relevant for us today as well. If we are Christians here this evening, what should we do? in a society that doesn't accept the kingship of Jesus, as we await his return. Well Let's have a look at the parable Jesus tells, first of all. And let's uh, go through this and then come back to see what it means for us. Well, in verse 12, Jesus starts by saying, "...a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return." So already he set up this two-stage process, is not he? The future king has come to establish his kingdom, but then he will go away, and he will come back again sometime in the future. But what does he do before he goes away? Verse 13, he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minors. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. He's called his servants, the ones who have already accepted him as king. And he gives them a minor each. And we're told that in the footnotes, a minor's worth uh, about three months' wages, so let's say, I don't know, seven or eight thousand pounds in today's money. And the instructions are to put it to work until he comes back. He doesn't say what he means to, to put it to work. He, he gives them freedom to decide themselves how they're going to do that. He also doesn't tell them when he will come back. But then we're told in verse 14 that his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. So here we have another group of people, his subjects, the citizens of this, this country. They were his servants, and there were other people who hated him and told him, we don't want you to be our king. Well, whether they wanted that or not, in verse 15 it says, he was made king, however, and returned home. In other words, whatever they wanted didn't actually matter because he was made king. He was given authority over them. And their only response could be to accept that kingship. So what happens though, when he comes home to rule as king, what is the first thing he does? What does it say? Well it says in verse fifteen, then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they'd gained with it. So he was interested to see how had his servants put his money to work. And although he gave ten servants a minor each, we are only told of three servants that he called in to give an account. The first one came, it says, and said, Sir, Your miner has earned 10 more. He's been given one miner and he's made another 10. For mathematicians, that's a 1000% return on your investment. Wouldn't mind an investment manager like that if I had anything to invest. The king is, um, is very impressed, isn't he? Well done, my good servant, he says and gives him his reward. His reward, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. Still very good. As master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. This one hasn't made anything. All he's done is he's kept the miner safe for the king and when he's come back he's returned it to him. Now imagine what Alan Sugar would say to an apprentice who didn't do the task that he'd been set and just came back and said, here's the money for you, uh, Sir Alan. Well, what was his reason for, for not doing anything? He says, I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you didn't put in, you reap what you didn't sow. What he seems to be saying is, I didn't believe there was anything in it for me. You just wanted me to do your hard work. If I'd made a return, you would have just kept it for yourself. Well, the king's not particularly impressed with this, is he? Look at verse 22. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I didn't put in and reaping what I didn't sow. Well, why then didn't you put my money on deposit? So that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. If you weren't going to make an effort, why don't you just put it on deposit interest-bearing accounts so it could accrue interest? And then he said to those standing by, take his miner away for him and give it to the one who has ten miners." Doesn't seem particularly fair to those standing by who complain, Sir, they said he already has ten. He replied, verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now having rewarded his servants, um, the king then turns to his enemies, the citizens who hated him, who refused to accept him as their king, and he gives them their judgment. Verse 27, Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them Bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now, it's a pretty serious warning, isn't it, for those who reject the king. Well, what are we to take away from all of this? I think the first point is to rejoice and praise God for his generosity. What is so bad about the third servant's lack of Productivity. It's not actually about his performance or lack of performance. It's actually about his attitude towards his master. He's failed to see that his master is a loving, generous and gracious master. Somebody who's willing to reward his faithful servants. He thinks he's just treating his servants as objects to abuse rather than people to whom he can show his love. He's missed the point. That to be a servant is actually a privilege in itself. And sadly he represents the, uh, the attitude of many today who don't see God as a God of love, but someone who uses people, somebody who u- needs their worship, needs their love to-, to flatter his ego. People who've put God on the same level as a human being. And that there are human dictators, there are there are bosses in organizations who, who do treat their subjects or their employees as, as dirt. But God is very different, isn't he? He doesn't need us. You know, when you're a God, so you, when, you go, when you're a God, you don't need flattery, you don't need worship, you don't need somebody to do your work. You can do all things yourself. The amazing thing about God is that he chooses to make himself known to us. He chooses to serve us in the first instance. And his act of service for his servants was to to die for them. But as Jesus said to his disciples, on the third day he would rise, and as he rose to life, he achieved the final victory over sin and death. He established his kingdom. And his kingdom is one where there is no guilt, where there is no sin, where there's no need to worry, Because the king loves his people and he provides for them. Back in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells his disciples about the worries that the most people in the world have. Worries of food and clothes and homes. And he goes on to say there, back in chapter 12 verse 31, But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. God has given us the kingdom. There's nothing more that we can need, nothing more that we can expect. And to be a part of the kingdom means to know God himself. It means to have all we need in Jesus Christ. Rejoice and praise God for his generosity towards us. But if the king has gone away... What are we meant to do in the meantime? Well, the parable is quite clear, isn't it? And the message that comes through here quite clearly is to put to work the gifts that God has given us. In the parable, the servants were given money and told to put it to work. What is it that God gives us? Well, money is one thing, isn't it? We all have money, some more than than others but we're all called to use our money wisely. Those who have more may appear to be privileged, but such a gift is also an extra responsibility because our money is not for our selfish use. We will all have to give an account of how we, how we use it. So never wait until you feel, well, actually, when I've got enough money, then I'll be able to give something to God. Use what little you have. Don't do it begrudgingly, don't do it out of compulsion, but do it with a joyful heart. We'll come back to that in a few weeks' time. Our time is another, again, something we all have, but some have more than others. Usually it depends on our, our family responsibilities, which we can't control. And if you are in a phase of life, though, where you have less of those responsibilities, then make the most of the time you have. It may not always be like that. Like money, it's easy to fritter away time on ourselves. We know one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And when we think of self-control, sometimes we think of it in terms of uh, uh, how we control ourselves, in terms of lust, maybe with um, alcohol, all those sort of vices. But actually, self-control is important in terms of money. It's important in terms of time. One of the um, initiatives of the Community Action Team last year was to set up a practical care team uh, to help members of the church and members of the community uh, who are in need. Apart from some of the um, more complex DIY things, but I don't think there's many of those, um, you don't really need many gifts or skills to do that. What you do need is is time and a willingness to help others who, who are in need. There are other ministry gifts which we've been given to use in the building up of the church, and It's great to see people coming forward um, after the ministry gift day last year to, to, to try things out, to offer uh, their gifts. And If you're still unsure of uh, what your gift may be, then uh, we want to follow that up and help you in the course of this year. We're called to put to work the gifts that God has given us. But what exactly is it that God rewards us for? And how does he, how does he reward us? Well, God rewards our faithfulness with greater responsibility. Look at what God says to the servant who earned 10 more minors. Verse 17, Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. What God is looking for here is trustworthiness or faithfulness. Who are the servants that he can rely on? And trustworthiness is a two-way thing, isn't it? The more you trust someone, the more they will trust you. The problem with the third servant was not that he didn't know how to get a good return on the money. It's that he didn't trust his master. And therefore he didn't even try to get a return. The first servant didn't actually complain at all, did he? He just got on with it. He wanted to do as well as he could for his master because this was somebody he had respect for. Somebody he trusted. He didn't know what reward he would get, if any. When trust breaks down in a relationship, then the whole relationship can quite quickly fall apart, can't it? It's been interesting. this uh, Last week, uh, the media have had a bit of a field day with the whole um, shadow cabinet reshuffle. Um, took longer than should have taken all that sort of stuff I was expecting to be the night of the, uh, the long knives uh, but in the end it was the night of the pen knives a couple of little changes but clearly are those Jeremy Corbyn finds it hard to trust because they're not loyal to him as, as a leader the first servant has proved himself trustworthy so what is he rewarded with? Well, it doesn't say that the master asked for those miners back that he gave him. In fact, later on it says that the others complain that he's already got ten um, and doesn't need another one. So it appears that he's keeping those miners that he's earned on the investment. But as Christians, we don't believe that any of our money, any of our possessions belong to us, do we? We believe that God has given them to us to be stewards of, to look after, to use for God's glory. All of that we have belongs to, to God. So when the master gives him 10 cities to take charge of, again, they don't belong to him, but he's responsible for them. And what this is saying is that God rewards his trustworthy servants in this life, not with everything they might like to have, not with a nice new car or a new home, um, a new holiday, but with responsibility. Those who are given a lot of money, but uh, are generous with it, often end up being given more money because God trusts them that they will not spend it on themselves, but use it wisely, put it to good work. And the reason that is a reward is because the person who has received it, sees it a privilege to be used by God in that way. As we come towards CM, God rewards us in this life with extra responsibility. We don't know exactly what the rewards will be like in the the life to come. And uh, in some ways, it doesn't really matter. Because the reason we are putting our gifts to work is not for what we will get out of it. But because we love and we trust Jesus as our king. We want to serve him. It's a privilege to serve him. And as we looked at this morning, he is the one who deserves the glory, the honor and the power. Not us key thing for us to do is not to, to beat ourselves up whether we're making a good enough return of one minor or five minors or, or ten minors, but are we growing in our knowledge and our love for our king? The more we grow in our love for him, the more we will want to serve him. There are lots of uh, opportunities in this church for people to go deeper in their relationship with God. But Satan will try and prevent you from doing that. He doesn't want you to go deeper in your relationship. He doesn't want you to to love and trust Jesus more. Will you let him prevent you? Or will you pray that God will protect you from him and give you a greater desire to know him more deeply? How will you seek this year? to put to work the gifts that God has given you? How will you seek to be more faithful to him? Some questions coming up on the the screen here to reflect on. And linked to that, do you consider greater responsibility and uh, opportunity for service as a reward or actually something to be avoided? Something that others can do? I don't want more responsibility. These are Questions that come out of this passage. These are questions for each one of us here this evening. How do we respond to Jesus as our King? What will we do as we wait for Him to come again? Let's spend a bit of time. Let's spend a bit of quiet to reflect on those questions and to to answer them in our own hearts. To see what God is saying to each one of us. How do we respond to Jesus as our King? This is some time of quiet.